Season 3, Episode 1, Noisy Desperation. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis concerning the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. Much as on the first anniversary of the Capital Insurrection, I feel as though we're turning another corner. Way back then, just seven short months ago, the naysayers were saying nay and claiming that there was no evidence that Trump or his inner circle was being investigated by the Department of Justice at all. It all feels like so long ago. Now, since then, uh, these folks have changed their tune a little bit, and we have had a very productive summer of hearings from the January 6th Committee and new developments that make it seem as though Merrick Garland is no longer cutting bait. Now, as it cools a little bit and we move into autumn, the sweet aroma of consequences is wafting into the air. So after 20 episodes of season one and 24 episodes of season two, the executive suite has decided to renew the podcast for yet another season as we enter a new season. In the run-up to the next round of public hearings that are to commence at some point, after Congress uh, returns from August break around uh, Tuesday, September 13th. So in this episode, the first step of season three, we're going to take stock of where we are in the investigation and the process prosecutions, and we'll make some attempt to look into the seeds of time and tell which grains will grow and which will not. The title of this episode is a reference to the James Thurber quote, Nowadays, people leave li- lead lives of noisy desperation. That idea surfaced for me when reading Trump's motion filed in Florida to claim that the Department of Justice was being mean to him and being unfair to him, and that this was very sad. That's what I think we are going to see from Trump world for a while. Noisy desperation. This is full Bannon flinging feces at the wall to see what, if anything, will stick. It's been a little over two weeks since the last episode, and even though I've not been recording new episodes in that time, I have been working on something that's a little less driven by current events and more by my own research. Now, as I have mentioned the last few episodes when I have done the numbers with regard to the ongoing cases in D.C., new charges, prosecutions, sentencings, etc. Um, the rate at which arrests have been happening in the last few months, really since June, has really slowed down. And so this really, you know, has given me pause and given me reason to ask a few questions as to why this is the case. We know that there are a couple of thousand more cases to go through. And, um, you know, the total estimates are something like perhaps 2,500. Um, I actually had a, a Twitter conversation about this. There's still, um, and I checked myself, there's uh, something like 2,000 people hashtagged. Um, and we don't know even if, you know, there are other people who haven't been hashtagged, as they say, identified uh, by sedition hunters, 
or identified as capital insiders who, um, you know, they're, they're, that we don't know about. There are people out there, apparently, and I'll talk about one of them briefly in this episode, that, um, you know, haven't been identified um, and yet, you know, are guilty and may be found through investigative means. So it's not for lack of suspects that the arrests have slowed down. And so this has caused me to ask any number of questions. You know, is it the case that the assistant U.S. attorneys in D.C. are a bunch of lazy underachievers? Um, is the FBI secretly sympathetic to the Trumpist movement and they've just decided to slow walk the remaining cases? These kinds of questions. Now, spoiler alert here, no. I don't think that's what's been happening. For me, keeping the eye on the ball means looking at Trump and his inner circle of co-conspirators and the broader Trumpist network. And so I focus narrowly on the public hearings of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack when those were ongoing. Um, sometimes, some episodes, I have foregone doing the numbers entirely, partly because this past summer the arrest rate has slowed down and other times I've not done a defendant profile. Um, so I've been using this break to read the entire universe of charging documents going back to June 1st and to trying to glean some dates from these documents to do some math to gain some insight into the work process at the Department of Justice and to you know, really ask the question why these arrests have slowed down. Now, usually when I do original research, I'll present the news ep updates first in the episode and leave the research to the end. But on this occasion, I think it makes more sense to launch right into my overall summary of the entire universe of cases from the summer and then get caught up in the latest news. Now, when I talk about these charging documents, um, I'm not, it would be so easy to just get deep into the weeds on each and every, every single one of them. But, um, you know, again, that's, that's not the goal here. The goal is to actually look at the broader trends rather than focusing on uh, a lot of the details. Although some of these cases, I have to say, are deeply fascinating. And it would be wonderful to, you know, do a four-hour episode and go down the rabbit hole. Um, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, hopefully you'll get a sense of what has been happening and to whom and what it, why I think it explains what has been going on with this slowdown over the summer. Um, the big picture is that the low-hanging fruit is gone and they are focused on what I would call, consider more difficult, more complex cases for a variety of reasons. I'll talk about why these cases have been more difficult and more complex. But there's certainly been, if you read the documents, an awful lot of work going on. And if there's one sort of take-home data point uh, that I found looking at these cases, it is that they are going after groups now. Uh, it is a higher level of complexity with regard to each individual case because there are uh, lengths between the various defendants, but also they are moving their way up the food chain in demonstrable ways. And so 
talk about that uh, during the Main Body of the Path podcast. And then we'll just touch briefly on a couple of the, the news stories around the January 6th attack. But first, of course, it is time once again to do the numbers. There's been a little over two weeks since the last episode. So, as always, here are the numbers sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 855 individuals charged, an increase of five since the last tally. That does not include five people charged on Monday, however. So, eh, ten. Um, that really bumps the, the total up quite a bit. There have been a total of 390 indictments, up by three. Six deceased, no change there. One dismissal, same. One acquittal, same. 388 convictions, an increase of 26 since the last tally. And 241 sentencings, an increase of 16 since the last tally. And so we have reached a point where 45% of all defendants who have been arrested for January 6th or related offenses have been convicted. Now that certainly is progress. So, you know, uh, if you look at the overall numbers, eh, okay, it's maybe 20% of all the people who are eventually, hopefully, presumably, going to be arrested. Nonetheless, um, they are doing, you know, they are moving through the pipeline. Now, um, I'm going to get to this latest project, which has been to assess the newly charged defendants from the summer. So again, it's not my intent to go into any great depth on any one of them, because the point is to get the overview, although I did take, you know, uh, some notes on some relevant facts from, from some individual cases that I think inform the larger picture in assessing where the universe of cases is at the present time. So firstly, what's included? Well, these constitute all the cases from the beginning of June through to August 19th. And again, very significant arrests occurred. Five three percenters were arrested on Monday, not including them in the set, largely because I'd like to actually get the episode out. That's a great case. And I, you know, I've already looked at its 40-page uh, statement of facts, and I mean, it's so juicy that I'd like to really reserve the time to do uh, so, you know, do a deeper look at it. But also, I just honestly don't want to go back and, and redo uh, the math on it. Although I think the, the as we will find out, uh, some of the trends that emerge from all the cases since June certainly apply to this uh, so-called B squad out of Florida. That was, again, this three percenter terrorist gang that was arrested on Monday, led by a former Florida uh, candidate for Congress. So, suffice it to say, you know, uh, these cases, you know, the cases on Monday are similar to these other cases, uh, but they're, they're not included in my data set. So I'm sure, I, again, you know, I've talked a little bit about the slowdown uh, in this, this podcast, and I'm sure many sedition hunters, probably most sedition hunters, open source intelligence people, thank you for your service, have also noted this, and even some observant journalists have noted this slowdown in the rate of arrests. So again, why? 
What's going on? Well, here are some ideas I've had about that. Some hypotheses that I felt could be tested by taking a look at the cases themselves. Now, the first of these hypotheses is the possibility that the government itself is lazy. Um, you know, as you move up the chain, as you spend more time working for the federal government, working for the Department of Justice, working for the FBI, you accrue more time off until you get into the eight-hour per pay period category for annual leave, right? So every two weeks, you get another eight hours a day, basically, off. And what many people do who work in the federal government, law enforcement included, is to take this annual leave in the summer. And so, you know, the AUSAs uh, in D.C., they're, they're right next to the magnificent Chesapeake Bay. They go out on their boats. Maybe they have a friend who has a boat. The weather is nice. You know, who wants to sit at a computer uh, working on these cases of these, you know, uh, abominable uh, people, you know, from all across the country who attacked Congress on January 6th? You know, maybe they need a break. So, I mean, you know, maybe laziness is a little bit too harsh, but maybe they're just slacking off, right? Maybe they're just a bunch of Gen X and millennial slackers who are, you know, slacking off. I mean, that's a possibility, right? You know, there's, there's the old trope of the lazy government employee. Uh, I don't think it applies here, but let's entertain the notion. Second possibility, they just run out of people to arrest. I just thought I'd mention this idea. I don't take it seriously. At this point, open source sleuths are the people who know the most about the aggregate status of these cases, and nobody thinks that they've run out of people at 850. So if you look at my feed at Twitter, I discussed this multiple times a few months ago, and I had the discussion again uh, just on Wednesday, other people have discussed it as well. I'm not going to go into great detail on this, but the people who have the most complete spreadsheets think it's, you know, again, something like, um, yeah, if you look at the insiders, you know, plus all the hashtag people, you're looking at, you know, 2,000, 2,500 people, and possibly more, right? So, I mean, there is a defendant who comes up in this data set who was unknown hadn't been noted before, and yet winds up, he's a parading defendant, but winds up, you know, being charged. And really interesting, well, interesting case because of, of what we don't know about it. Um, anyway, the third uh, hypothesis is that the remaining people are just too hard to find. Um, and this may be true of a few people, but I, I don't think so, but nonetheless, the idea would be that these people are just too hard to find. Now, when we look at all the, the people who attacked the Capitol, you know, they documented their own activities, and many of them brought their cell phones. So, using the cell phone data, the government has been able, been able to track down quite a few people who weren't necessarily even on anyone's radar. This was the most heavily documented crime scene in the history of the world, and the vast majority of suspects will become defendants. And, again, it is a hypothesis, right? You know, 
I didn't think going into it that it would be supported. I don't think it is supported, uh, and I'll report why. Um, one of the things that we would find, for example, is that the dates of identification, the dates of investigative contact, would be relatively recent, if that were the case. If that were the case, if it was simply a dearth of people at the intake into the uh, you know January 6th prison pipeline, then, you know, or the, the people were too hard to find, the, their dates would be relatively recent. That's not supported by the data, and I'll talk about that in a minute. The final hypothesis, and this is one I think that is largely supported, is that it's a work process issue. So what does that mean? So one part of this problem is that we are getting to the point that more cases are going to trial, which means that some agents are going to take more time away from their ongoing investigations to testify and to prepare for testimony. Um, that being said, that's relatively small, right? I mean, basically what they have to do is they have to meet with the AUSAs. You know, they might prep their testimony a little bit, but they know what they're going to testify to. The AUSAs know what questions they're going to ask. And all they really have to do is to testify truthfully to what they've already put in the documents that they've submitted. So that part of it, for them, uh, you know, after they charge and arrest people, the rest of the case doesn't take a lot of time. They, they can move on from there. So overall, the, the bulk of the work uh, for the people who actually do arrests it consists in the investigation itself. Now, still, you know, when you're talking about this many defendants, perhaps every little bit of time uh, accounts for some proportion of total volume. So maybe that is resulting in some downward pressure on arrests as well. But again, I originally became originally interested in this issue because I suspected that some of the resources were being drawn away from the investigation of the foot soldiers and focusing on the central plotters. Um, so that is something that I think could also be included in the sort of work process hypothesis, right? Um, trouble is, it's hard to really know that. I mean, if they are taking AUSAs away from looking at the foot soldiers to looking at the organizers, to looking at people close to Trump, to looking at Trump himself, that wouldn't really show up uh, through the tools I'm using. And again, you know, like to, to do a, a bit of full disclosure on that, right? So, you know, if the investigation of Trump and his inner circle and Giuliani and Sidney Powell and John Eastman uh, if that investigation is taking away resources from the foot soldiers, we wouldn't really be able to tell from looking at the data included in the foot soldiers' charging documents. Now, the key variables that I looked at in examining the questions of work process with regard to these defendants arrested over the summer uh, were all found through the charging documents. So, some of them have different numbers associated with them. What does that mean? Well, there are 33 cases in total in the universe of cases that we're looking at. So, nonetheless, there, there's different problems of data availability for different cases. So, I'll talk about each of the data points that I'm looking at and also review 
the, the number of cases that apply to each of these different data points. So, you know, with some of them, um, there's data in every single case, and with others, eh, there's not. So I'll talk about each of these. So what are the key variables that I'm looking at? Uh, the first is days elapsed from January 6th to the arrest. So that one's easy, right? So each of these cases has a definite arrest date associated with it. And of course, January 6th is a fixed point in time, right? So I looked at that. Um, and that's, you know, easy to establish. So of these 33 cases, there was an, uh, a total lapse of 540 days from January 6th to the arrest. So in other words, you know, these weren't, uh, I mean, again, kind of by definition, right? I mean, just looking at, you know, the time frame that we're, lo we're looking at, basically, that is going to be the midpoint uh, of this data set. Now, the next variable I looked at were the number of days elapsed from January 6th to the identification. Now, this is kind of a thorny question. What do I mean when I say identification? Most of the, the subjects who, um, you know, they've been identified by some means or another, right? So they have pictures of people at the Capitol doing different things attacking police officers, you know, vandalizing the Capitol, uh, or just, you know, merely being in the Capitol, whatever their offense, uh, there needs to be an actual human identity associated with that. Now, oftentimes in the charging documents, this is associated with a date. So it will say uh, that on such and such a date, we received an anonymous tip from a sedition hunter that said that this person uh, was the person identified in this photo. And most of these are relatively straightforward. Now, uh, if you look at, you know, I was able to find, again, 33 cases in all. There are only 17 of these cases that have a date, a definite identification date associated with them. Now, one of the cases that doesn't have a date associated with it is Michael Green. I opted to not associate a date with Michael Green. You will recall from the Oath Keepers case that Michael Green of Missouri is someone who, uh, you know, was basically hired by Stuart Rhodes to act as the, the lead tactical coordinator uh, for their, quote, security and or attack on the Capitol on January 6th. So he was charged. Um, but again, you know, I mean, he was no, right? So, you know, I don't have a definite date associated with Michael Green uh, for that reason. And again, that's being conservative. Um, you know, the reality is Green's identity was established rather early on in the process. And, you know, to my mind, it was always an open question as to why he hadn't been charged with the other Oath Keepers uh, who took part in the, you know, the various elements of the Oath Keepers attack 
on January 6th. Uh, but for some reason, they didn't arrest him until June 23rd. So, uh, you know, there's no identification date associated with Michael Green. Now, for most people, though, this is relatively straightforward. Um, you know, it, it just says, you know, uh, okay, well, we, we found this person, you know, we got a tip, they were identified. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the identity is confirmed. I use that first date. Now, there is a question, and I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here. Some charging documents in January 6th cases will talk about different tips that have been received that have false information. That's not the case in this set of cases, uh, for whatever reason. I know I've seen cases, however, where they talk about, well, we received all these tips and we followed up on this one and it turned out to be true. Um, this set of cases, that just doesn't happen. They just talk about the true tips. So, um, again, if what the variable of interest is the work process and the work process at the Department of Justice and the FBI, then, uh, you know, it, it makes sense to use whatever date they're putting in their document because I'm sure that is an accurate reflection. Maybe they received an accurate tip earlier and didn't follow up on it. Um, or maybe they received an inaccurate tip and they followed up on it and they found that it was inaccurate. Or maybe they received uh, an inaccurate tip or an accurate tip they, they didn't follow up at all. doesn't matter. Um, I think that what's included in the charging documents probably accurately reflects the work process. The bigger question, actually, is in those 16 cases where they don't include an identification date, right? So what's up with that? Well, one of the interesting data points that I found is that um, some of the identifications that are made in the charging documents include no date. So the main sources of tips are family and or friends of defendants and or open source intelligence sleuths. Thank you for your service. Um, however, there are other identifications that are made. Uh, there are identifications that are made by law enforcement through the normal investigative process. For some reason, in the charging documents, these identifications do not have a date associated with them. Nor do identifications that are made based on cell phone data. They will report the date of the subpoena, uh, whereby they, you know, they got all the cell phone data. They won't report the date that whatever investigator sifted through the data and found that uh, cell phone number such and such was associated with person such and such. You know, I would love it if they standardized this process a little bit more so that I, as a researcher, could know exactly when the FBI uses cell phone data to find this information, but it's not in there. Although, interestingly, that is one of the things that I learned through this is that part of why this process has taken so long um, I'll talk about a little bit about this in a moment, is that some of these identifications are, in fact, based on this cell phone data. All right, so, again, key variable. The days that are elapsed from January 6th to the identification, and again, I was only able to track that down in the charging documents for 17 out of the 33 defendants. Then there's a, the number of days elapsed from January 6th to what I'm calling the first investigative contact. Now, this is a, a variable that I identify 
effectively create. Um, and to my mind, this is a good measure of how long it takes to get to these cases. So when the government obtains the identity of a given suspect and is going to turn them into a defendant, how long does it take for them to follow up on this with some in-person verification of identity? And this is why I'm calling the first identity investigative contact, or FIC, as I've abbreviated it on my spreadsheet. This is usually an, an investigative interview of a suspect. So if you've read any of these charging documents, you will know that um, as part of the process, most of the time the FBI shows up at the door of the suspect, they knock on, they say, hey, were you at the Capitol January 6th? Can we talk to you? You know, those defendants were smart. They would say, I want to get my lawyer now. Uh, invariably, all, almost none of them seem to do that. But nonetheless, um, that date uh, usually appears in the documents. In fact, actually, I found it was easier for, to verify this concept, this first investigative contact, than it was to identify a definitive identification date. So, out of the 33 cases, I was able to find 22 cases that had a definite first investigative contact. Most of them are interviews. Some of them, however, are confirmation of identity through other means. For some reason, they haven't conducted an interview, or at least an interview that's not reported in the charging documents. I don't know why. Um, but in other cases, they're uh, talking to people who are known to the defendant. And so, if that's the case and there's a date associated with it, boom, it, it went right into that column. Next variable are the days elapsed from the identification to the first ident uh, investigative contact. And again, that is a measure of how many, you know, the work process, again, right? So, there's this pipeline, and we're getting you know, in, in the government, all this information. Um, and how long does it take for the FBI to get to the point where they're knocking on the door of the defendant? Now, as I mentioned, there's a data problem here, right? And, you know, as a social scientist, this is something with which we have to deal. Um, I could get into the methodology here. Uh, there's a reason why I'm not putting this out as something that has... Uh, measures of statistical reliability because this is small n. It's the universe of cases, which is a great thing, but um, it is uh, there's all kinds of problems with small n research. Nonetheless, what I'm measuring really is the work process at the FBI. I'm not really measuring anything about uh, the defendants themselves or, or anything of that nature. Um, and so, you know, we're in, it's look we're looking at two different things. So, how many charging documents have a definite date of identification, and how many of them have a definite date of first investigative contact? So, of the 33 documents that have both of these things, only 11 have both a first investigative contact and an identification. Nonetheless, I believe that this is probably representative of the work process as a whole, because it is basically a third of the cases, right? So, unless there's some kind of selection effect, and there may be, um, but unless there is some kind of selection effect that is winnowing this number down, 
we would expect that those 33% of cases are representative of cases as a whole. So it takes 104 days from identification to the first investigative contact. In other words, from the time a sedition hunter uh, sends a message to the government saying, hey, the, this guy, I found him, he's all over Facebook, he's a three percenter, turns out, you know, uh, he took video, I know his identity, blah, 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 to the point where, knock, 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 hey, FBI, we're friendly, we're nice Mormon guys, we just have a few questions for you, you don't need a lawyer. So, 11 of those cases, it took 104 days. Now, it is interesting. Now, when you compute averages and you're using a, a data set and you've got some, it's not really additive, right? So you can't subtract um, the 184 days from January 6th to the first investigative contact, uh, you know, and you can't do it that way because there are a number of cases that are excluded. And so the math doesn't quite work. You can only use the data that you have, and you can't uh, infer anything about the, the missing data that you don't have. But of the cases that we have, 104 days from identification to that first investigative contact. So then, obviously, we have data on all the arrests. So another key variable is how long in this set of cases did it take from identification to arrest? 33 cases, we have arrest data on all those cases, but we only have a definite ID date uh, for 17 of those cases. How long does that take? 436 days. So in this set of cases, from June to late August, it took 436 days from the time when the government received confirmation of identity regarding a particular defendant to the time where they actually arrested and charged that defendant. Now, I know a fair number of sedition hunters, open source intelligence people, listen to this podcast, and none of this will come as a surprise to any of them. What this shows is that they're not running out of people that the slowdown isn't a res result of uh, just, you know, it's harder to find these people. These people have been found. And there are, in fact, many more people who have been found and who have been identified who have not been arrested. Why is that? Because it takes 436 days from the identification to the arrest. So... That's on average. Now, that number, I actually think, is probably going to grow, right? That number is going to grow just by a process of, you know, time moving forward. That number is only going to get bigger for the defendants who have yet to be arrested. Math is a wonderful thing. So that is why it's taken so long, right? These are the cases that, you know, were identified... Uh, over a year ago, but it is only take, you know, they're only getting arrested basically now. And the question is why, right? So they're not running out of people. 
Um, it's they've, they've, they're working the backlog. There is a backlog of cases of people who have been identified, but who have yet to be arrested because the government is still doing the necessary investigative work to be able to charge them. And so, if you're familiar with uh, statistics or social science research at all, you'll be familiar with something called selection bias or a selection effect. And we're looking at a interesting case of uh, a kind of a temporal selection effect, right? And so, what I believe is happening here is that the low-hanging fruit, the empty, the, the easy-to-resolve cases, are all gone. And now, moving forward, we're looking at cases that are more difficult for one reason or another. They are more complex for one reason or another. And why are they more complex for one reason or another? One of the key findings that I found through uh, basically using this case study methodology, right? I mean, I'm okay, I've got a spreadsheet, I'm running some numbers. But really, this is um, this is small in methods, and you know, I'm getting a little bit in the weeds here in social science methodology. But you know, if you can, if you got a large data set, you can do correlations. That's great. But if you got a, a small n, it's really hard to do that. Uh, moreover, there's not a lot of variation on the dependent variable of interest here. Uh, by definition, these are all cases. I'm interested in why are these cases uh, being resolved late, or why are these people being arrested late? Well, the universe of people consists of people who are being arrested late. Properly speaking, I should have looked at a uh, comparative group of people from, let's say, six months earlier, and compared the uh, different uh, attributes of those cases to these cases. And, you know, if someone want to do that, yeah, that, that'd be great. Uh, but I think that what you would find is that those cases, you know, having looked at a lot of them, those cases are a lot simpler. There are a lot more parading defendants. There are a lot more solo people. There are a lot more people who were just identified and arrested, and that's that. All in all, what, you know, the, the big take-home here is that the reason why these cases are taking so long is that these are the more complex cases. The simple cases are all gone. The easy ones, the low-hanging fruit, those people were arrested. And this is consistent with a pattern that we have seen. Now, I believe that there are some exceptions to this. The Proud Boys case, extremely complicated case, but they made a decision at the Department of Justice that this case was extremely important to get to the insiders. And so they prioritized prosecution and arrest of the Proud Boys. Right? And note the way that they did it. They arrested the foot soldiers first, and then they charged Terrio later. Right? Same thing with the Oath Keepers. They realized that the Oath Keepers you know, are in touch with the inner circle. Right? And we've seen with the Vallejo exhibit, exhibit 10 in the Vallejo discovery material, Right? We look at the ponds, you know, you got Kelly Sorrell in touch with people, uh, you know, in QAnon, in touch with people possibly in Michael Flynn's circle, in touch with people associated with the RNC, 
in touch with people associated with Rudy Giuliani, if not Rudy Giuliani himself. She calls that the, quote, Giuliani friends pod. You know, that was essential. And so that's part of the evidence in that case, which we will get to uh, when the Oath Keepers actually go to trial. Nonetheless, again, those complex cases were prioritized, but there are more complex cases that are, you know, complex. You know, some of them are, are I guess you would call them normies, but it's more complex because it involves multiple defendants. And I would like to give a couple of examples of that to show the layers of complexity that result in statements of facts and the charging documents that are 20 pages long, as opposed to, let's say, your average parading defendant who, and again, I haven't measured, I'm guessing, you know, maybe six pages long, right? Um, a lot more work goes into these complex cases than into the simple cases. I mean, that's stating the obvious, but it explains much of the reason for the delay. One of the key reasons for complexity, and one of the things I think is a big take-home from this episode, is that the people that were arrested this past summer were people who were connected to a wider group of people. Now, there were a lot of singletons, a lot of defendants who basically arrived on a bus from some town in southwestern Pennsylvania, uh, but with no broader connection to any other network other than, you know, maybe Doug Mastriano paid for the bus, right? Southwestern, I mean, southeastern Pennsylvania. Although, I'm sure there's probably some buses from southwestern Pennsylvania as well. Nonetheless, there were a number of people, you know, a lot of, a disproportionate number, I believe, uh, who had group connections. So, out of the 33 defendants in this set, 15 of them were connected by family ties or by ties of friendship. So you had uh, you know, different groupings of people who were related to one another. So you had um, the, for example, the, the Cronin. Let's look at the Cronin family. Now, they're not connected to any broader group, right? So this is a father and his two sons. Um, but interestingly, they all have different dates for first investigative contact. Yet they all have the same day of arrest. Why is that? Well, um, basically they discover the other two members of the group uh, through the investigation into the primary member of the group, or rather the first member of the group that they identify, uh, who is Dylan Cronin. So I don't have actual ID dates for these folks, um, but the first investigative contact for Dylan Cronin occurs on January 11th, 2021. So they identified him very early on. Sorry, I said Dylan, I meant Kevin. The first investigative contact for Kevin Cronin is in August of 2021. So... According to the, the Statement of Facts, by the way, it's a 29-page Statement of Facts for all three defendants. Um, it says, quote, on August 11th, 2021, agents interviewed Washington Army National Guard, Wang, leadership, and confirmed Kevin's military status. So, again, 
um, you know, arrested in June of this year, but they were already investigating uh, and talking to people in the Army National Guard in August of 2021. And similarly, uh, there are different dates of investigative contact for the different Cronin defendants. This, you know, this family of a father and his two sons from Washington. Uh, so for Kevin Cronin, the first investigative contact is in February of 2022, and they talked to a co-worker of his at the U.S. Postal Service. So a lot of this, it looks, there's just a lot, there's a lot of video evidence that is used in the Statement of Facts. Um, and he, on January 11th, 2022, uh, Dylan Cronin is, uh, his Army Reserve First Sergeant is, they, they, they talked to, to that guy. So they're all arrested in June, but it's more complicated because they have to confirm the identity of these various defendants. So they go to the Washington uh, Army National Guard. They have to go to the Army Reserve. They have to go to the U.S. Postal Service. And these things take time. So we don't know uh, the date of identification because the Cronins apparently came to the attention of the government through cell phone data. So at some point... And again, for some reason, they don't ever mention at what point uh, the government noticed that this phone number is associated with this person, right? So the first person that they list is actually Kevin Cronin, right? So I'm assuming that's Kevin Cronin Sr., right? So we've got Kevin Cronin II, Kevin Cronin Jr., Dylan Cronin, and their father, Kevin Cronin. So they live in uh, up Washington, uh, you know, together. And so the whole family is there, and the two younger sons are involved, and uh, the two sons are involved in uh, the Army Reserve and the Washington National Regard, National Guard. But again, uh, you know, it's complicated, right? 29 pages. Um, you know, and there's there's information they, they show the uh, the travel records from Frontier Airlines. There's a lot of work that goes into basically just a, a relatively ordinary uh, family of a father and his two sons. But just the fact that there are multiple defendants here and the identity identity of each of these people has to be confirmed means that this case is more complicated, even though, you know, in some sense, you know, this isn't the Oath Keepers, right? But it's relatively, you know, it should be straightforward, but it's not, just because you've got this interrelated set of defendants, and any one of them could tip the other two off, right? So uh, one of the things that you note, of course, and this is not something I've, I'm, I'm noting for the first time, uh, but when you have a group of defendants like this, they arrest them all at the same date, right? So the arrest and charge them all on the same date, uh, because you know, if uh, you you know you could have a situation where uh, you know one member of the family goes off, right? And of course, the person I'm thinking of in this context 
is Jonathan Pollock, right? Jonathan Pollock, over a year after other members of his family charged, you know, uh, he was the mean attacker in the Pollock family. Um, and yet, he's still out there somewhere. Still probably being supported and fed by, you know, uh, various people in the network of Trumpists. Um, but, you know, again, that's why you'll, you'll want to arrest everybody, if at all possible, on the same day. So, again, Cronin's relatively straightforward case, um, but just complicated by the fact that it's multiple people. So, out of these uh, 33 total defendants, 15 of them are related in what I would say is some kind of, of grouping. Um, so you've got Chilcote and Chilcote, Kramer and Kramer. You, you've got um, Cronin, right, the, the three members of the Cronin family. You've got Tracy Isaacs. Uh, Tracy Isaacs is a sometime oath keeper, and uh, yet she, you know, she also has uh, her family in, in terms of her husband, who is also, you know, there inside the Capitol with her. And also uh, a, you know, a friend, a female friend who traveled with her. And so basically there's this investigation where they find her first off and then they find her husband and they find her friend. And it's very similar to the Cronin case where they have to identify all these people. Um, a little different in this case in that they actually do a direct interview uh, and they, they make the first investigative contact with both her husband, uh, Louise Allen, and her friend, Leslie Gray, on May 4th of 2021. But again, um, you know, this is a case where it took so long. Uh, it, you know, um, Isaacs is identified on the 11th of January, 2021. And the first contact with Isaacs uh, First investigative contact was the 16th of 2021. And then her husband and her friend, Alan and Gray, are, they have their first investigative contact on uh, the 4th of May, 2021. And yet, they're all arrested on the 6th of June, 2022. So, I believe that, you know, she's not really a particularly active oath keeper. It's not the oathkeeper part of her case that makes it complicated. It's just the fact that there's multiple defendants. They are all in close proximity and connection with one another. And they yet need to be rounded up and identified uh, and, you know, all at the same time. Similarly, you've got Sam Rodriguez. Sam Rodriguez is actually a friend of another defendant, defendant Jackson Kostolsky. Kostolsky's case is done. Uh, Kostolsky has actually already pleaded guilty and been sentenced to three years of probation. So, you know, his case is done, but yet Rodriguez is only arrested on July 6th of 2022. So, 14 out of the 33 people, they're, they're friends, but mainly family, right? These are family groups of people. And again, just it's more complex just because you have more defendants who have to be identified and then you, you have to arrest them 
on the same day, or else you wind up with a Jackson Pollock situation. Sorry, I said Jackson Pollock. I meant Jonathan Pollock. You'll forgive me. Now, the other complicating factor in all of this are not just the family and friend connections, but also the connections to other groups. And that's another take-home, right? So family is just a subset of the idea of group connections. And so many of these defendants are connected with other groups. So you go down the list. So you got Michael Green, right? Uh, Green, of course, uh, is the, you know, the tactical lead on the day for the Oath Keepers, uh, who's arrested much later than any of his other co-defendants. You've got Hatchet Speed. Uh, he, that's not, his, he made that name up. Anyway, Hatchet Speed, uh, who's a proud boy, right? Uh, you've got Ryan Kelly, who, of course, is affiliated with the Michigan Republican Party and um, also, uh, you know, is a, a documented extremist who is a member of something called the American Patriot Council. You have the aforementioned William Mellers, who is yet another proud boy, who has a very long uh, statement of facts, and, you know, it's hard to really suss out, like, what the deal is in his case, uh, why it took them so long, but it did. you got Tyler Etheridge, uh, who was, of course, the, the defendant of the week uh, in the last episode, uh, who is very much, you know, he's... Our point of entry, let's say, uh, looking into this new apostolic movement uh, and, you know, directly connected possibly with higher-ups of the, the, the organization in Colorado. And, you know, this is someone, I think in this case is actually going to wind up proving to be of broader significance. And, you know, Etheridge's case is rather interesting in a number of... Etheridge is, is you know, so-called hashtag parlor pastor, identified very early on, like, uh, I believe on January 7th, and then first investigative contact is on the 22nd of January 2021, only arrested on the 7th of July 2022. And I have absolutely nothing to prove this, but my guess is he may be cooperating. He may be cooperating against whoever it was who paid for his airline ticket. Um, you know, whoever it was connected to uh, Cheris Bible College uh, who paid for his airline ticket. So, you know, I, I expect that is going to be an, a fascinating case, but it's not a simple one. I mean, Etheridge, you know, I could be wrong, right? So, I mean, Etheridge was interviewed on January 22nd, 2021. And yet, if you look at the what's contained in his charging documents, uh, you know, he's still kind of braggadocious um, much, much later on, right? I mean, he's saying, well, you know, I'm not afraid uh, of being charged with different offenses, um, you know, on September 24th, 2021, he said, is it was shown to me the fight for freedom and liberty is still afoot. So my message to all who were involved that day is this, don't be ashamed. 
Don't fear. We will be vindicated. The truth will come out. Don't be afraid with of what you will. They will sentence you with. I'm not. I'm ready for whatever I'll be charged with. America is still primed and ready. So dangerous insurrectionist, obviously, um, but you know again connected to the broader uh, new apostolic revival group, and uh, is one of the you know inroads I think into that group, and you know we'll see. I mean it's going to be an interesting case. Antonio Lamada, a vex for Trump sedition VIP, uh, again more complicated case. James Robinson, who's a three percenter. So if you add up all the family and friend connections and all the members of organized groups, um, it's 22 out of 33. So these are disproportionately group-affiliated individuals. So they've got all the singletons, or they've got many of the singletons, and now they're going for networks of people. They're looking for people who are attached to broader networks. And so I think that moving forward, that's what we're going to see. More and more people who are affiliated with networks of, of those who are responsible for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Now, in addition to these groups, of course, um, there's a couple of things that look like kind of cleaning up. Uh, one such case is the case of Jared Bargar of Missouri. I'm not sure if it's Bargar or Barjar, B-A-R-G-A-R. Now, Bargar has his first investigative contact on the 18th of January, 2021. So he's identified by law enforcement right away, but there's this curious problem, which is that Bargar, on January 6th, lost his gun. So he traveled from Missouri and winds up dropping his gun on January 6th. So he ultimately appears not to have committed a crime for which they're, they're going to charge or which they would have charged him at the time, right? Because they decided they're not going to charge restrictive grounds. But there's a separate matter of the gun. So even though uh, this defendant is identified early on, um, he belongs to a category that they're not going to charge. But there's this gun floating around. And eventually, they track this gun down. Uh, you know, it's in a police possession. Um, two different pawn shops, and eventually, it goes to uh, his stepfather, Bargar's stepfather, and it's Bargar's gun. So Bargar winds up admitting in an interview, um, and so it just took a long time to connect this weapon to this defendant, and so. Again, that's why there's there's such a long time in his case. It's kind of, of cleanup. This isn't someone who's uh, particularly, you know, part of a larger network or, you know, there, there's not, he just kind of fell through the cracks. Um, and so I suspect we're going to see some more of these cases. I mean, he's really an outlier. This isn't very typical. And I'm not sure, though, uh, you know, how many other guns there are floating around out there, right? How many other guns on January 6th came into the possession of the police that might subsequently be tied to uncharged defendants? Um, but again, you know, that's he's a real outlier in that regard for having a very early first investigative contact, but yet, um, you know, at that time, 
not really someone the government was interested in charge, being charged with charging with a crime, and then finding out subsequently that, oh no, uh, he brought a firearm to D.C., we're going to go ahead and charge him. So again, that wasn't like there was this, you know, there was a, a more complicated investigation in this sense, but it wasn't of this defendant. It wasn't of Jared Bargar. It was of his gun. There's this ongoing investigation, this kind of a loose thread, and they eventually pick it up, uh, tie the gun to Bargar, and wind up charging him. Another person, again, who's really, you will probably remember the defendant profile in this case, David Walls Kaufman, the Capitol Hill chiropractor. Now, his case is a little unusual. Again, early first investigative contact, well, relatively early, uh, on October 19th, 2021. Now, I already talked about his particular case, and again, this is a defendant who took them a long time to arrest. They arrested him on the 7th of June, 2022. One of the things I don't remember that whether I pointed out was that actually, and this is, again, odd and unusual. Um, it could just be because he's local to D.C. But Wallace Kaufman was actually subject to a stakeout. They did a stakeout of Wallace Kaufman, and uh, on, they took pictures of him on October 19th, 2021. So I have that listed as the first investigative contact. So again, usually identity is confirmed via an interview, but for some reason with Walls Kaufman, they decided to do it via stakeout. And again, in these charging documents for these set of defendants, they are a little different. You do see different investigative techniques being used than is fairly standard for most of, uh, you know, these cases. There's a regular pattern. These are the cases, these cases that they're mopping up at this point in time that seem to be cases that break the pattern for whatever reason. For whatever reason, they're more complex and it just takes more work. In this case, you know, actual stakeout of the defendant and getting pictures of him to obtain confirmation of his identity. Now, in some of the cases where we don't have information for first investigative contact, it's because they secured information regarding the defendant's identity by other means. Uh, oftentimes, by making an identification based on state records, such as a driver's license photo. And for some reason, there's no recorded information anyway in the statement of facts about an interview or the date of an interview. So that's one of the reasons why there's uh, some missing data with regard to the first investigative contact, and it's difficult to figure out how, uh, you know, how long the investigation had been ongoing, right? I mean, for some people, again, like Bargar, you know, there apparently was no investigation ongoing of him. There was investigation ongoing of his weapon that he had lost in D.C., but there was no, you know, investigation ongoing of him. So for these defendants who have missing information with regard to the first investigative contact, it could be that nothing was happening on their case this whole time. Looking at the other documents, though, I kind of doubt that. For the ones where we have information, it seems that, um, you know, you had something like uh, 100 days elapsed between the first, you know, the identification 
and then you know actual follow up, uh, physical follow up. I you know in the case of Walls Kaufman, a stakeout, right, um, or in some other cases, you know talking to co-workers, talking to friends, talking to family. Um, but for those identifications lead on driver's license information, unfortunately, you know, it's hard to tell. But I don't think these cases were sitting entirely kind of abandoned. On the other hand, again, these are cases that were open, right? These investigations were opened. Maybe not much was happening with them, but again, not as open and shut as some of the others. And there's another case I think is good evidence of that. The case of one Lilith Sayer, S-A-E-R, of Portland, Oregon. Now, for starters, uh, like many of these cases, Sayer's case is one that has the footprints, uh, the fingerprints of sedition hunters on it. And they're very, you know, when these are usually done, a lot of them are anonymized. Um, this one, though, it, it specifically points to uh, Michigan T. Thank you for your service, Michigan T. Um, Tipster 1 uh, provided a uh, post from Michigan T on J January 17th, 2021 to the FBI. Um, but what's interesting, of course, is that this tipster, you know, so I mean, you've got the work of sedition hunters, but this tipster apparently is someone who personally knew Sayer, according to the charging documents, and had, quote, recently had contact with her. So, again, this seems like a pretty solid confirmation of Sayer's identity. So why is this case complicated? Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. And I teased this in an earlier uh, thread on Twitter. Because I've looked at a lot of these, and there's language that's included in this document that I've never seen before. So again, the ongoing thesis of this is that these are cases that, you know, have been ongoing, right? And some of them are complex because there's multiple individuals. They have to ID like, multiple individuals. They have to ID them by confirming their identity with each, you know, uh, independently, oftentimes through interviews, oftentimes through uh, photographs or other means. The problem here appears to have been establishing that Sayer was in the capital. Now, if you read a lot of these, you'll see that many times this is done via cellular data. So they get this tip from someone who's personally known to Sayer. Uh, they get another tip at FBI Portland on January 19th, 2021, um, that showed a, a different image and claimed that Sayer is a member of a Portland resistance, uh, which is interesting of itself, you know, uh, this is a you know, horseshoe theory at work, right? Someone who, you know, I'm guessing goes down the rabbit hole on the left and winds up somehow in Trump world, uh, f goes full QAnon, right? Sayer is QAnon. So, in any event, um, the thing that I find fascinating here is that they've, they've got two tipsters, who have provided images and said, yeah, you know, I know this person. Um, and uh, this, the second tipster said they didn't personally knew, know them, but, you know, was familiar with the person somehow, right? So presumably online, perhaps through different, I'm guessing, like, quote, Portland resistance organizations or groups or something of that nature. In any event, what really stands out to me in the statement of facts is that 
Based on the aforementioned tips of numerous tips that identified Lilith Sayer as the individual in image one, the FBI used a number of investigative techniques to determine if Sayer was inside the U.S. Capitol. What investigative techniques? Doesn't say. Uh, so we don't know. But it appears, I think this involved looking at, at photos somehow. So, you know, they have access, again, uh, all, you know, all the open source stuff that's available. They have access to the surveillance images. And I think that this shows a little bit inside the process uh, that the, the FBI is going through. They've got a lot more video stuff that they can go through that is available uh, even to you know, the most dedicated open source intelligence loops. So I think that that's what they're doing here. They were looking through that, and they couldn't find Sarah, which is kind of odd, because they've got uh, evidence that makes them believe, okay, this person is inside the Capitol, um, but and they're readily identifiable, right? Literally has blue hair. You know, stands out very much, multiple facial piercings, very much stands out in the crowd, and yet, um, you know, there's... It's unusual to, to actually have an agent in the, the statement of facts kind of report a failure, right? Report a failure to verify uh, a piece of information. But that's what appears to be going on. And again, my overarching thesis here is that these cases are more complicated for one reason or another. And this case, early, you know, tip, early identification information, nonetheless, they're unable to actually physically confirm that Sayer is inside the Capitol. They find, uh, you know, they, and this investigation continues. So, uh, the quote, an updated search for Sayer was conducted recently in March of 2022. As a result of this search, the person believed to be Sayer was located outside of the U.S. Capitol amongst a crowd of rioters. They then, the agent, conducts uh, information in, sorry, investigations through interviews with three persons known to Sayer. And, um, you know, they all independently confirm Sayer's identity. Um, the agent also looks at the uh, driver's license photo of Sayer. And uh, the agent says, yes, th this is Sayer. So, good enough, right? But again, the problem with this investigation appears to be situating Sayer in the capital. Sayer is someone who, you know, they believe was inside the Capitol, but yet, for some reason, there's problems trying to make the determination whether or not Sayer's in the Capitol. The agent then tracks down multiple open-source videos, YouTube videos. Uh, there's a video that Sayer took on January 5th, for example. Uh, there's a video of an interview that is done in Portland, uh, from the PSU, uh, Portland State University Vanguard, um, in which Sayer also appears. And Sayer uses aliases, um, but again, very distinctive looking person. Sayer identifies herself as, quote, Draken Sayer. Um, and, you know, there's an email address that's also given, ProtonMail, uh, for Draken Sayer. So, you know, that shouldn't be too terribly confusing, right? The, the fact that the Sayer is using multiple aliases, it's a bit odd. <clears throat> I don't know why they're confirming this uh, in the video. Sayer's birthday name is actually um, Ian Anton, and I, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, uh, Ian Anton C-O-U-T-U. -U. 
uh, Ian Anton coaching. Um, it's it's kind of it, you've got someone who's a who's a given name uh, appears to be you know the coach. I don't know. It's, <laughs> they've got multiple names. Even the original name, Ian Anton coaching, uh, is almost sounds kind of like a made up name. I'm not sure about that, but um, in any event. So there, there's this long rigmarole in the statement of facts, an unusual number of steps uh, with, you know, what appears to be good, solid tips coming from people who are known personally to Sayer, and then multiple open source videos, um, but then a, a hiccup where they apparently, you know, using investigative techniques that are not specified, uh, hit some kind of a hiccup, and it's hard to say what that is. But this language actually continues later on in the document, indicating the, the complexity of this investigation. And I think the hint is actually on page three. So, and this is why, you know, I said this is extraordinary. They, the FBI, if they have some kind of investigative failure, they don't usually document it. Um, but here, they kind of do. Um, the FBI used a number of investigative techniques to determine if they're was inside the capital, the U.S. Capitol. Initially, European search did not yield a positive presence of the person believed to be Sayre inside of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. So that is the part that, to me, is rather extraordinary because it shows that the, this agent went through a number of steps and was frustrated. Now, one of the steps that they don't talk about, I believe... This is why there's this ambiguity in this case, is I think that they were looking for cell phone data, right? Um, and they weren't able to find it. They were not able to get data. Most of these cases have confirmation uh, using cell phone data to determine that this person was present. And for some reason, for Sayer, that information is absent. And I don't know if that is, you know, a complicating factor, but again, I do believe that that's why I read, and they say, in order to further confirm the identity of the person who needed to be there, Yorfian met with three individuals who know them. So, because they couldn't confirm the location of Sayre inside the Capitol, it required the use of additional investigative steps. And I think that's the missing part of the puzzle. Because the very last section, before the conclusion, um, the agent says, quote, according to records obtained by European, the email address, it's the email address, is associated with Sayer. Google Pay information provided for the email address came back addressed to Ian Kotu. European's investigation revealed that Sayer's birth name is Ian Antu Kotu, although Sayer commonly, commonly uses the alias Dragon Sayer, right? So, the use of multiple aliases, apparently, may have been somewhat confusing. Um, you know, this could be like a, a dead name, birth name situation here uh, that is somehow confusing to the agent. But ultimately, I think that what caused this case to drag on so long is that they were looking for that electronic confirmation of presence in the Capitol. I'm not sure why. And I think, you know, they've got these photos showing Sarah in the Capitol, I'm not sure why they would need further electronic confirmation, but it appears that this looks like the missing piece of the puzzle that the agent, for some reason, felt needed to be added. And again, there, there's multiple you know steps in here that show that like 
this was a, a kind of a frustrated and frustrating investigation because the agent was looking and can't find it. Uh, quote, and the, finally, they find this. After reviewing IP activity associated with logins for the Google email account, open source research shows dragonsayergmail.com was assigned an IP address on January 6, 2021, located in Washington, D.C. So they were able to find Sayer, finally, by looking at logins for the Google email account uh, attached to this IP address in D.C. So, you know, I don't know if that means that they went to somebody's Wi-Fi or something, but, you know, they eventually were able to get that electronic confirmation. But, again, it's extraordinary, right? Because you've got a blue-haired individual inside the Capitol. There's multiple photographs. You would think that it would be relatively easy for the government to say this person was inside the Capitol, and yet, for some reason, it takes a very, very long time. Uh, you know, the ID is in February, February 22nd, 2021, with the tip. Um, you've got the, the, the first actual interview uh, only in March of 2022, and then the arrest finally occurs in late June of 2022. So, again, this was an investigation that appears to have been ongoing, but was frustrated, and that's why it took so terribly long. And from... To, to my mind, that's kind of what's extraordinary in this, because this document actually, this case they document, right? And I, it is really unusual to find in cases the government actually saying things like, you know, after using a number of investigative techniques, you know, we weren't able to find it. So that's an extraordinary admission on the part of the government and explains, again, why this particular case took so long to resolve. Now, I already mentioned that many of these cases have the fingerprint sense edition hunters all over them. Um, and some of them, you know, they, they've used documents, uh, they've used uh, images, photos that were supplied by open source intelligence uh, investigators. Thank you for your service. Um, they've also unusually credited specific accounts anonymously. I mean, uh, these are anonymous accounts uh, on Twitter. And they credited Michigan T twice uh, in, in different cases. Uh, of course, the Kelly case, which, you know, uh, if you've seen their Twitter feed, you know that uh, this is a case that they've been all over. Uh, Kelly, of course, being someone who ran for office, ran actually uh, in Michigan, um, just lost the primary, came in fourth, in the gubernatorial primary in Michigan. Um, but also they've credited that January 6th attack.com. Uh, they've credited sedition hunters. So that's a bit unusual. A lot of times when there are these uh, contributions that are made by either individuals or collectives, they're, they're, they're uncredited. Uh, but for some reason, they've, they've actually named names. Uh, well, not actual names, but they've uh, you know described the sources anyway. Uh, of this information. Uh, sometimes through third parties, uh, like the, one of them, you know, uh, Michigan T was credited, even though Michigan T probably wasn't the person who actually supplied, definitely wasn't the, the person who supplied that uh, particular kit to the FBI. But all that said, I'd actually like to focus now quickly on a case that um, appears not to have been and is a little bit unusual in that regard.
This is a case of Todd Tilly. Now, the agent assigned to the case is uh, someone from operating from the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force out of Maine. And in the charging documents, rather unusual, is that um, it says, quote, I have studied video footage and still photographs of the January 6, 2021 incursion to the U.S. Capitol, and I have identified an individual in them as Todd Tilly of South Paris, Maine, for reasons described herein. And so there are any number of cases that begin with tips from co-workers or family or family friends or, uh, you know, open source intelligence sleuths. Many times, of course, again, many of these cases, I think an unusual proportion of them, many of the cases this summer relied heavily on Sedition Hunter's information. I'd like to point this case out because it, it, he uses he, the, they, the agent uh, names are redacted, obviously. Uses I. Says I did this. And it's extraordinary here. It appears that uh, this is, this case, it looks to be, uh, if, you know, unless they are using information that goes unreported in the statement of facts, appears to be the result of work by this FBI agent. Without, <laughs> and again, it's, it's so remarkable uh, that, you know, there's so many cases relying on tips either from the public uh, or especially the sedition hunting community, it's unusual to see one that appears to have originated with an FBI agent. So he or they reviews this information and then identifies Todd Tilly and interviews Tilly's brother on August 30th, 2021. And so... Um, you know, I have that as the, the first investigative contact, right? Rather than contacting Tilly directly, this is the brother, and um, the brother confirms uh, that Tilly is the person in the photo, which is, uh, or the video, which is a uh, from the, uh, of course, Jaden X, right? The uh, the infamous Jaden X, let's say John Sullivan, uh, the person who, you know, if you ask right wing people. Other than Ray Epps is the person most responsible for January 6th. Obviously, wasn't. But, um, so, again, the agent of, uh, spots this person, Tilly, who's wearing, uh, like a, a red hoodie, uh, in the, quote, a video of them, quote, attempting to breach the door to the house chamber and pants individuals standing in the hallway just outside the house chamber and captures an individual wearing glasses and a red hooded sweatshirt at approximately uh, minute number 2749. So the agent sees this video, identifies this person as Tilly, somehow through unspecified means, then approaches Tilly's brother um, and... Tilly's brother is able to confirm Tilly's identity in the um, in the crowd, and actually goes further. Screenshots electronic messages between himself and his brother uh, from January six. So there's images from outside the Capitol, uh, and you know he replies, "Well, are you there?" He's like, "Yes." Kind of screwed us over. Did he even get a chance to do anything? Just her, blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, 
Tilly's brother, yeah, may not have been the source of the tip, but certainly uh, cooperated with the government when approached by this agent, who, again, this case is remarkable because this is just investigative work by the government. Uh, and, of course, there's the usual phone number, verification, um, and another bit that, that is unusual uh, is that they associated this number with Tilly in part from records obtained from the Mean Department of Labor uh, because Tilly used this phone number as part of an unemployment claim. So I don't think I've actually ever seen that particular uh, venue being used as an investigative lead in these documents before. And Tilly's case doesn't, I mean, not particularly interesting in any other, you know, he's basically an insider. Uh, he's, he's also caught the uh, 5104E2D and G crime, which is the one where you're uh, willfully and knowingly uttering loud and threatening uh, abusive language or disorderly and disruptive conduct uh, in the, the Capitol buildings or cap on Capitol grounds. Uh, so, no, not a, not a, you know, particularly interesting defendant, um, but, you know, that is one that I think is interesting just because it appears to be just all about the government's work. And so, you know, I know I thank sedition hunters and uh, open source intelligence people a lot, but I want to thank the FBI agent in Maine who uh, appears to have tracked down Tilly all his own without assistance from the public or, uh, you know, sedition hunters at large. Uh, and, you know, just looking at the Jaden X video doesn't describe the means that he used or they used to, you know, obtain Tilly, probably use the same kind of techniques that sedition hunters would use, uh, looking for, you know, photos of this person. But, you know, hats off. Hopefully the government will be doing more of this in other cases. And in support of this, I'd like to offer another case, uh, the case of Bernard Sir. Now, Sir, as a defendant, is a little bit more serious than someone like Tilly because uh, he is someone who is engaged in the tunnel fight on the lower west terrace of the Capitol. So, a uh, different degree of seriousness with regard to, to his case. Uh, this is a Viper Cap, right? So, this is someone who had been uh, singled out as, you know, he had this don't tread on me um, cap that had, you know, the, the don't tread on me snake on it, which is how he got that particular hashtag. But in many of these cases, there's a lot of information in the statement of facts on investigation. In this one, um, on the invest, sorry, the investigation and the identification of the, the person. In Sir's case, it's remarkable how little there is. Um, there's no tip. There's no uh, information from the public. There's no information from sedition hunters. And you don't even get to the identification until page 9 of an 11-page statement of facts. So it is frustrating when doing this kind of work because there's so many different writing styles and ways that agent, agents develop these documents. Uh, in this case, there's very little information uh, with regard to how they came to identify Bernard Sir. And he was assigned um, the uh, FBI AFO number 429. And, you know, they, they talk about, well, we posted images to the websites, social media, 
trying to get public systems, and then don't mention any public public systems. So I don't know if they, they had any public assistance. Um, and the way that they identified him it is rather unclear. You know, I think that this may have all been work of law enforcement. Uh, although somebody will probably, if, if somebody actually worked on this and says, well, actually, no, I just, you know. Um, but weirdly, you know, just like, again, these cases are, are a little different. Um, you know, a lot of times it's driver's license photos, a lot of times, uh, you know, I mean, in, but we're, we're having just different sources of information than usually are coming up. So there was, you know, uh, like unemployment in Tilly's case, right? I, I don't think I've seen uh, that used to identify someone before. And in Sir's case, it appears that they were able to identify him on the basis of a photo from Sir's 2018 U.S. passport application. So that is fascinating. Quote, based on the similarity between Sir and AFO 249, the FBI located a social media account associated with Bernard Sir. A review of the account revealed a photograph of Sir posted in July 2020 wearing a tan and black baseball cap with a snake on it, consistent with the hat worn by AFO 249 on January 6th. And that is it. That is really, you know, uh, they then interviewed someone uh, who's familiar, and they, they don't even give him, they don't, they don't even give, like, uh, the, the date of this interview, just says someone familiar with Sir, and that's good enough for purposes of identification. So, very, very strange, very short, very little information about the identification process, but it appears to have been done by the government and on the basis of a photo provided for a passport application. Now, if the government is doing this, are, are they, it raises a question, right? Are they just going through passport applications uh, and looking, doing uh, image searching, right? Doing facial recognition searches on passport applications. I don't know. Um, but it, it seems possible. There's so little investigative information about the identification of Sir in this document that it really stands out. But, you know, and again, there's, there's no information about any, you know, kind of false leads or why this, this process took so long. But Sir winds up getting arrested on the uh, 21st of June, 2022. And, you know, it could have been because the government was running facial recognition on passport applications, which um, seems, you know, great. That, that's, that's wonderful. I mean, maybe some people might raise some civil liberties you know, issues with that, but, you know, they do it on driver's licenses, and we know way back in the Jane Leiden Jenkins episode, right, you know, one of the first things Jenkins did, um, you know, it was he was trying to apply for a passport in December of 2020, so, you know, maybe that's a thing that is going to happen in, in other cases, and so, you know, again, most of these documents they're longer than the usual charging documents. They're more complex. I'd like to point to another one quickly that is odd because, again, uh, much like Sir, you know, who appears to be identified with a photo of his passport um, application, uh, there's another defendant, uh, Landon Manwaring, who there's almost zero information on. This person uh, is charged with parading, um, and that's it. And 
they, they were arrested on the 10th of August, 2022. And there's zero information. There, if you go to the Department of Justice uh, Capital Breach page, there's literally just the, you know, uh, basically the, the information where, hey, he's charged with parading, signed by, you know, Matthew Graves, U.S. Attorney, and that's it. There's, it's just like, a, it's a, you know, a stub. I mean, if this is Wikipedia, we, we would call this one a stub. We'd just say, it says there's information, information file, and no further information. So we don't know what, is this guy a walk-in? Was this a result of a tip? There's absolutely nothing. Hopefully that will be provided later. Um, so that kind of stands out because, again, most of these cases are not like that. Most, that's, you know, most of these cases are not just, we're, we're just charging this guy with one count of parade. Most of these cases uh, appear to be the result of long investigations, multiple contacts, multiple interviews, uh, multiple uh, sources used with, you know, video evidence, things from their open source, uh, and, you know, so again, that's the overarching theme. So why did it take so long? It, what was the take-home and the thesis of this after testing all these hypotheses? <clears throat> well, it's not the case that the government is running out of defendants. Uh, if that were the case, we would find that, uh, you know, these were people who were recently identified. These are not people who were recently identified. These are people who were identified, for the most part, with a few exceptions, right? People like Manwaring, who was like, I have no idea, right? There's, there's no information to go off of. Um, or, you know, people like Sir, who, at some point, we don't know when uh, they identified him from his passport photo, um, you know. So, uh, and, and all these other cell phone people, right? We don't know when they were identified. But for the most part, these were complex investigations, uh, relying on uh, a lot more information from sedition hunters than is even typical in uh, a case that is heavily reliant on sedition hunter information. So, even though you know, the work apparently slowed down or the number of arrests slowed down, uh, they're using information that was supplied, you know, oftentimes many months ago by sedition hunters in the arrests that were made this past summer. Many of them have uh, what I would call, and you know, maybe this is the wrong term, com complexifying elements to them, right? So they are involving multiple defendants. This was a family affair summer. That so many different families were arrested, you know, with the Cronins. So they all have to be independently identified. The Jacksons, uh, they have to be independently identified. Or people like Walls Kaufman, where they actually do a stakeout. Or people like Tracy Isaacs, who drops in and out of the Oath Keepers and sometimes pays monthly dues and sometimes doesn't, uh, who along the way uh, brought her husband, and he gets dragged into the investigation, uh, and brought uh, a friend who traveled with her, Leslie Gray, and so all those, they both need to be interviewed uh, and identified, and their identities independently confirmed. Um, there's, you know, kids like Mellers, who's violent, and we don't know why it took them so long to arrest him, and someone like Etheridge who is, you know, sort of passively resisting, uh, not a violent defendant, but has important connections to uh, the new apostolic revival movement. And, you know, someone in Colorado paid his way. So, you know, 
that that's a, the other thing, right? So there are groups, and then there are people who are connected to or are VIPs. You know, I suspect Etheridge is connected to an unindicted VIP that they're interested in. Sam Rodriguez, right, uh, is someone who they got through the Kostolsky investigation. Kostolsky's already been sentenced, right? But again, this pulls in, you know, this other defendant. And so, you know, that's complexified, right? And all the, the various extremist organizations, right? So, you know, again, Green, who for some reason was never charged with the other Oath Keepers, only gets added in in June of 2022. Hatchet Speed, a proud boy. Ryan Kelly, affiliated with the, the most important paramilitary terrorist organization in the country, the Grand, the grand Old Party, uh, the Republican Party, uh, but also a member of something called the American Patriot Council. Uh, Mellers, again, you know, another proud boy. Um, uh, Antonio Lamada, who himself, you know, a VIP, that's for Trump guy, right? So there's a whole other part that we haven't really talked about, but I suspect that part of why, you know, these weren't people they were sitting on because, you know, they couldn't be identified. I think with some of these people, it is strategic. Now they're going after these organized ties as well. So they, they brought in the families. Those were more complex. That's why that took more time. And then there are these other people who are connected to VIPs or are themselves VIPs or connected to other groups, right? James Robinson, a 3%. And that brings us to uh, the B-Squad, right? This group of defendants who were just arrested, not including the data set, but just arrested and charged on Monday. So while I didn't include them in the data, uh, nonetheless, this is very similar to the other cases that have occurred this summer. One, it's a group. Two, it's an extremist group, right? The three percenters. Um, three, there's a VIP connection. So the charging document charges five three percenters who participated in the tunnel brawl uh, and were engaging in what they described as a heave-ho activity. So they were heaving and hoeing. Um, they are being, they're not being charged with like, you know, AFO or bodily injury, uh, but they do get the obstructing law enforcement charge. Uh, and these people call themselves the B-Squad because this is Plan B, right? Plan A was to win the election, Plan B was to stage coup. And so, according to the charging documents, uh, rather long case. That's another thing it has in common, right? So this is a 40-page statement of facts. So again, similar to many of the other cases that we've seen this summer, uh, it's longer, there's more people involved as a group, as an extremist organization, and there's a VIP connection. So there, when you've got something like that, it is, uh, they're going to pay more attention to it because it's more likely that this is going to be something that is central to a broader case that they're going to bring, hopefully, when they finally start looking at the main ringleaders, right? So this is like just a tier below that. So you've got five three percenters and the leader of the group, uh, Jeremy Liggett. So another thing, of course, it's a Florida case, right? Like with the Proud Boys, you know, so many of these people are connected to Florida. Of course, the 
place where the former President Trump uh, has his residence slash resort slash, uh, you know, uh, national security grifting palace, whatever you want to call it, at Mar-a-Lago. Now, one of the things that is interesting is that it is alleged that the leader of this group, uh, Mr. Liggett, actually made the travel arrangements for the group to travel to D.C. for January 6th. And you'll know, of course, that I've long had an interest and maintained that many of the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th didn't make their own travel accommodations. It was an organized effort to get these people to the Capitol and to fund getting them to the Capitol. And this, I believe, is hopefully being worked on by the Green Team, hopefully is being worked on at the committee, hopefully is being worked on by the Department of Justice itself. Uh, we do know that Jeremy Liggett has had a search warrant served on him. Uh, the statement of facts is very well documented, and it shows the kind of activity, by the way, that we've seen from groups such as MAGA Drag the Interstate, right? But on a smaller scale. So they sent out stuff on social media. Uh, Liggett made a video showing, uh, you know, bring knives, bring sword canes, bring batons, bring your body armor, uh, that sort of thing, uh, to encourage violence at the Capitol on January 6th. And uh, again, the, the pattern in these cases has been for them to charge the foot soldiers first and to then add in the leaders later. I don't know why they do this, but that's the habit, right? So they charge the Oath Keepers, um, and then when they up the ante with charges of seditious conspiracy, boom, they added Stuart Rhodes in. And this past June, boom, they also added uh, Mr. Green in. So uh, here, you know, they're charging these five, but Mr. Liggett, whose home has been searched, um, and, you know, will probably be added into this this group. So, uh, quote, B leader reserved a block of rooms at a hotel that is near to the U.S. Capitol, and he, the five individuals named this statement of facts, and approximately 40 other members of B squad stayed on the same floor of that hotel on January 5th, 2021. Now, it's unknown. Will other, you know, 40 members of this 3%er B squad also be charged? Uh, perhaps these are the only ones that they found committing crimes? I don't think so, though, right? I mean, if you're a violent extremist, you know, I mean, the Proud Boys did have this thing where they would try to hang back and, and let the normies do the work. Um, but, you know, I'd be very surprised if, if some others of this group don't also wind up being charged. And it is interesting, again, look at me, the reservations. We don't know who paid for it, right? Now, that would be interesting. Did somebody make this huge donation to Liggett, or did Liggett self-fund uh, bringing 40 militants to January 6th. So this is kind of a BFD, right? Um, you know, again, the, if you look at the, the investigative threads in this document, the government isn't just finding this out now. They actually have the information that shows that this was ongoing for quite some time. Now, with regard to what they actually did, uh, these five identified members, Bench, Cole, Crowley, Preller, and Rockhold, uh, were in the tunnel, and they don't call it a stack, but they, they, were, they were in a stack, kind of like the Oath Keepers, right? 
and they were engaged in, quote, a constant back and forth of heave-ho efforts by the rioters and resistance by the officers, end quote. And, you know, as always, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, the, what I believe, coordinated effort to pay to bring people to the Capitol for January 6th. And um, information statement of fact says that a credit card in B Leader's name was used to reserve the rooms at the Hampton and Washington Downtown Convention Center for January 6th. Um, well, actually, 15 hotel rooms from January 5th to the 7th. So that's, that's probably quite a good bill. Um, and, you know, again, don't know if they were self-funded. Did they reimburse Jeremy Liggett for their hotel rooms? Or was there an organized effort by someone to send this group of extremists? Um, I'm salivating at the prospect of finally, you know, looking into the, the broader effort. Because I don't think that this was all done for free in a voluntary fashion. But again, in common with these other investigations, this isn't new. So if you look at Benjamin Cole, Cole was interviewed in or around March and May of 2021. And the the charging documents are incredibly thorough. So if you look at Preller, um, Preller rented a car and uh, his, his phone was, had, a, had a phone number um, that was previously used that was subscribed to corporate resources investments from May 2018 until September 2021. And that was a Florida corporation registered, whose registry agent and only officer director is the individual herein named as this B leader, right? Again, Jeremy Liggett. So, you know, he's handing out phones to people as well. And again, uh, looking at the complexity here. So in February of 2022, an FBI task force officer surveilled and interacted with Crowley. So again, going back to like Walls Kaufman, they're, they're doing stakeouts on these guys. Now, the document also appears to tie this group to the rallies in D.C. So, the, in the sorry, excuse me, the rallies in D.C. that were basically the run-up, the uh, dress rehearsal for January 6th. So, they've got a picture of one of the defendants, Bench, who uh, was there in attendance dressed in the same body armor that he wore on January 6th, um, on December 12th. So I'll link to this document in the show notes. Um, it's not on the Capitol Breach page yet. It is, it, this is from the press release. I will probably have it up in the next five minutes anyway. Um, but again, it's the same pattern of facts. So they're doing investigative work in March and May of 2021, and yet are only just now being charged in August of 2022. And, you know, it shows, you know, I believe that the care and the amount of work that is going into these cases, so that is, I believe, part of what's happening. The government has a lot of cases that they have been developing all along. These aren't new cases. 
but these are cases that have to be much more meticulously documented um, because, you know, they prioritize the, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers very early on because of their connection to VIPs, but now they're going after some of these other groups. So what does that mean? Well, they're, you know, three percenters were certainly large and on the ground. Um, unlike, you know, they don't have a Terrio, they don't have a, a Stuart Rhodes, right? Mike Vanderbilt uh, is dead, so it's a decentralized organization, but of course you have these volunteer leaders, you know, basically people like Jeremy Leggett who are cropping up. Who's next? And if I were a member of a militia paramilitary gang, I'd be worried about that, right? Uh, are they going to go after the, the First Member Praetorians? Uh, First Member Praetorians. Are they going to go after uh, the members of the New Apostolic, uh, I always want to say Reformation, Revival, right? So, you know, they're, they're, I don't want to call them breadcrumbs, but there are clues that they're now targeting groups that are more closely affiliated with insiders, more closely affiliated, and when I want to say insiders, I mean people uh, with links to the inner circle. Right? So, you know, we're probably just one payment away, one financial transaction away from tying Liggett to whoever it was who's, you know, funding this. Because I sincerely doubt that this was all done on their dime. You know, guys like this probably, yeah, they probably have a lot of equipment uh, already, but we know they brought uh, just a boatload of stuff. According to the charging documents, military-style vests, zip ties, pepper sprays, clip-on knives, police-style batons, helmets, and masks. And we know that uh, Stuart Rhodes had a whole bunch of money that he was throwing around buying equipment uh, before and after January 6th. And this is a very impressive statement of facts. It is a result of what appears to be rather long, coordinated work. Um, this occupied somebody, uh, of course, you know, again, names are always uh, redacted, for a, a very long time. And there are multiple witness interviews. So they call this group um, the Black Group because it's one of the, that's one of the pseudonyms that they use when they made the reservation. Uh, and they appear to have multiple witnesses who were perhaps among those 40 people who are uh, giving information to the government. So we don't know. We don't know if other people will be added. If I were Jeremy Liggett, uh, I would certainly be looking for a lawyer. I, he's definitely going to get added to this. And the other thing that I don't see here that I think we should is a conspiracy indictment. Um, this is clearly a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. And I'm not sure why that charge isn't there. Uh, if you don't have a conspiracy to obstruct a, an official proceeding, you don't put that in there. Why not seditious conspiracy? So this potentially could be another seditious conspiracy case. And part of what I think this presages is that this could be a very busy fall. If this kind of arrest is something that's going to be happening every week. You know, it also explains like part of that whole workload hypothesis, right? Why were there so few arrests this summer? Well, they were... Somebody was giving an awful lot of time and care to this B group case, this B squad case. Um, how many more of the, those are there out there that the government is working on that they are finally ready to take before a judge and charge these people? 
people who are linked to paramilitary gangs and possibly VIPs, right? That direct link between the paramilitary gangs and the Republican Party itself, the Trumpist movement itself, is part of what I think we're going to see happen, both in the committee hearings and in the cases that are being brought by the Department of Justice. That seditious conspiracy case with the Oath Keepers, I believe they're going to finally show that link in court and establish that in court as a prelude to starting to charge the insiders. That is something that I do believe they're going to, is going to wait until after the midterm elections. Right, so I actually spent a little bit more time on that than I had intended. But again, I think it, it really presages what is going to happen next. And I do believe that we're going to see more cases like the B-Squad. Big groups of people tied to paramilitary gangs uh, and perhaps also tied to Republican insiders. So this could be the season where we see uh, finally, right, you know, people, uh, you know, like Maga Drag the Interstate, right? You know, someone, <laughs> I mean, finally, uh, you know, looking at the groups, um, you know, looking at Charlie Kirk, right? Looking at, you know, the groups that paid to bring buses. Looking at people who, I believe, paid for hotel and travel accommodations for many capital attackers. Okay, let's move on now to the issues of you know, some of the news stories, um, which I'm sure you've been following. The main one, of course, being the continuing fallout from the search at Mar-a-Lago. Now, Legal Twitter has done an excellent job on this. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but basically Trump's attorneys, uh, three of them anyway, have filed a motion that is bizarre. A bizarre motion that was directed in the wrong court, and they were told to, you know, that, hey, this is the judge business, and this is the wrong court, you filed this in the correct way, uh, basically a legal smackdown, and the document itself reads like Trump dictated. That's what I think of it. They actually go all the way to include a little bit of a first-person narrative from Trump, where he's just asking questions like, why won't you tell me what you took? Well, obviously, if you know what you have, you know what you didn't have when they were gone, so you should know what you took. These are classified documents, and, you know, you shouldn't, I mean, need the government to tell you what you have if you're supposedly taking such good care of them. Um, he's requested that a, a special master be appointed, but this, of course, is occurring much later than would actually be effective, you know. Presumably, the Department of Justice actually looked at the content of all these boxes. Uh, press reports have said that there were at least 300 boxes that were retained illegally. Um, Trump, you know, they're calling it a lawsuit, but it's a motion acting, asking for judicial oversight, um, which is, I didn't realize that's a thing, um, but, you know, they characterized the search warrant as overbroad, it wasn't, there was specific information uh, and, you know, it called the, the information presumptively privileged, which, again, is not a thing. There's no presumption of privilege. So part of this is due to this, this definition of executive privilege 
that I believe has become over-abused. The function of executive privilege is supposed to be so that the president can get advice from his advisors. Well, these classified documents were not, by you know any stretch, uh, advice from advisors. These were classified documents improperly retained and improperly stored in an unsecured facility that has tunnels underneath it that kids, you know, like an 18-year-old kid was able to access. Um, so, you know, you've got Chinese spies uh, accessing Mar-a-Lago. Uh, you've got, you know, all kinds of people apparently just wandering out of these document, you know, areas that supposedly should be uh, retained in some sort of high security facility. So, and again, that's, you know, that's where I got the title for this episode, even though this episode ultimately isn't about that. One of the themes that we're going to see happening now is just noisy desperation. Trump is increasingly desperate, increasingly without legal recourse. Uh, no attorneys want to work for them. He won't pay them. Uh, moreover, he's asking them to file kinds of things that wind up getting them disbarred. You know, Rudy Giuliani has been disbarred. You've got uh, proceedings against Sidney Powell and John Eastman. And so he's kind of toxic right now. And he's using like a basically a B squad of people like uh, Christina Bob, who was of course at the Willard and is essentially an unindicted co-conspirator of Trump from January sixth, um, and that's you know that's who he's dealing with now. He's not he's got no one around him but sycophants and unindicted co-conspirators who are basically stuck with him. And the claims that were in this motion, again, were kind of absurd. Now, you know, it's not, they weren't even kind of absurd. They, they were genuinely absurd. Um, you know, and according to another report, you know, Trump has been asking, well, people take these documents and they put them in their libraries. You know, why can't I keep them? And again, he knows the process works. He knows he's gaslighting people. Uh, he may not be the smartest person in the world, but he knows that the presidential libraries are, in fact, actually run by the National Archives. National Archives are the ones who take the material and put them into the, 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 the libraries themselves, even though, um, you know, they basically oversee, uh, and I use this word basically advisedly, they oversee uh, the libraries, and they certainly oversee the process whereby classified documents that have been retained are properly stored uh, so that, you know, they are secure and not, not accessible to the public. But apparently, you know, Trump has a, had a standing order to classify everything, uh, which again hits on a theme that we saw in Exhibit 10 uh, from the Vallejo discovery material. So that's that. I don't expect anything is actually going to come of this motion. It does appear to be a publicity stunt. It does appear to be something that is designed to uh, gen up outrage on the right among the Alex Jones crowd. Legal effectiveness, I don't think that that is something that uh, is really going to be, you know, any kind of cause for concern. This is really a bad joke of a legal motion. Now, with regard to the ongoing legal cases uh, at the DCD, I'd like to focus uh, just quickly on one of them, the case of Kyle Fitzsimons of Maine. I know I've mentioned him intermittently on the, on the show, kind of have an interest in him just because 
Um, you know, even though he appears to be sort of a lone wolf, just this uh, random uh, grocery store butcher uh, who wore his white coat and attacked police and wound up getting very bloody and maniacal looking um, on January 6th. Nonetheless, uh, decided to go for a bench trial rather than a jury trial. Didn't want to take his chances with the D.C. jury. Um, for some reason decided that an Obama appointee, Judge Rudolph Contreras, would be a better choice. So that trial has concluded. Uh, closing arguments were conducted, um, I think, last Friday, I, think, I believe the 19th of August. And so the judge in the case has basically said that there is going to be a verdict sometime in the next couple of weeks. So early September. So Fitzsimons, again, um, didn't, you know, necessarily, uh, wasn't using weapons. He was basically just charging the line once again in the, the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. Uh, it did feature uh, testimony from three officers, two of whom reported receiving injuries from Fitzsimons' attacks. Um, Officer uh, Nguyen and uh, Officer Sarah Beaver and Officer Aquilino Ganell, of course, who is everyone, everyone's familiar uh, by now from the January 6th hearings. Thank you all for your service. Of course, Ganell ultimately medically retired for his injuries suffered during January 6th. And, you know, Fitzsimons is on video, just going up to the officers, repeatedly charging the lines, repeatedly pummeling officers, and um, according to the, the law, according to the prosecutors, you know, even though it centered on a, a few minutes of the most violence, he was on the front, front lines uh, for most of the, the, the fighting. And, you know, he's on video doing it. So, allegedly, but he's on video. We're going to have a verdict in the case. This is yet another one where it looks like the sentence could be rather long. And... Fitzsimons is an idiot, right? Because, as Guy Reffitt learned, it's far better to plead to one felony count than to have these charges stack up against you, go to trial, and, you know, our system is set up to resolve cases mainly by plea bargain. Now, in a case where there could be a verdict of innocent, sure, go to trial. But the evidence here is extremely solid. There's multiple... Uh, bits of video evidence showing Fitzsimons assaulting officers on January 6th. So Fitzsimons, who, like Shane Jenkins, has, I believe, five children, they're going to be visiting him in the visiting room for a very long time. And another note uh, related to proceedings, the, um, the government has recommended a 17.5-year sentence for Thomas Webster. Webster, of course, you will remember, is a uh, retired New York police officer who had at one point served on Mayor Bloomberg's protective detail, who is known uh, by the hashtag iGouger uh, because, well, kind of, you, you guessed it, uh, he was gouging at the eyes of an officer on January 6th. So that might eclipse Revit's sentence as the longest sentence to date. Um... Among AFO defendants, of course, uh, my, uh, my, my personal favorite, I don't want to say favorite, the person I think will ultimately wind up getting the most time is probably Jeffrey McKellum. 
Uh, McKellip, of course, is also going to trial. He actually has a status hearing at 3 p.m. today. Um, but you'll remember he, of course, is the former CIA contractor who winds up stabbing a Metropolitan Police captain in the face with a flagpole, leaving a permanent scar. Um, so, you know, at least in terms of AFOs, I think he's probably going to get the most time, although with 17.5 years recommended, we'll see what um, Webster gets. Ultimately, looks like he will probably wind up eclipsing Reffitt. Um, judges oftentimes split the difference. Could be they will get about 10 years. That would be kind of my guess at this point for Webster. Unless a judge really wants to set an example. Another bit of news, of course, uh, don't know how to feel about this, Liz Cheney goes down to defeat in her primary contest for the sole U.S. House of Representatives seat in the state of Wyoming, uh, losing to her opponent uh, by a rather substantial margin, 40%. So Hageman got 70%, which is 113,049 votes. Cheney only got 49,399 votes. Works out very nicely and evenly, assuming I did the math correctly. Uh, a 40-point margin. So there's all this talk now about what Cheney's goals are. Uh, is she going to set up some kind of campaign for president in 2024? Personally, I believe that that's not something that she's thinking about right now. I would guess that she's going to be focused on getting it done in the committee this fall. And any other goals beyond that, uh, you know, after she leaves office, that's, you know, probably something that she'll, she'll handle at that time. I know that the chattering political class likes to get a bit ahead of themselves, and they love horse race politics, and let's talk about presidential politics as if it was the only game in town. Back in the areas that, you know, we have ongoing midterms, there's the general election, and more importantly, for Liz Cheney at least, there is the committee work. So, you know, I don't really particularly care what her political future is. I am interested in the work that Cheney is going to do on the committee. The Republican Party itself is pretty much beyond hope as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, she may want to go try to turn that around and clean house. Who knows? Um, but if you're not able to do it with the voters of Wyoming, it's pretty clear that the future of the Republican Party is with Trumpism and with extremism, whether that be uh, a Trump or a DeSantis, and all the way down to the dog catcher and your local school board with groups such as Moms for Liberty uh, taking these bizarre uh, social conservative wedge issues, you know, um, and of course, right to life organizers, uh, people, you know, focusing on maximally restricting women's uh, reproductive health or uh, reproductive health of people who have uteruses uh, and you can get pregnant. So that's the agenda of the Republican Party. The defeat of Liz Cheney doesn't really change all that much. He agrees with most of that, most of that agenda. Um, but, you know, she's, she doesn't have to worry about running for re-election now. She can focus on the work of the committee. And, you know, we can leave whatever her future plans are to the chattering class in D.C. And one last detail uh, with regard to the status of the January 6th investigation in the committee itself. We don't know what they're doing. But we do know that staff are still in D.C. and they are working hard. One of the things that I've noticed is that uh, if you look at the Twitter account for the January 6th committee, 
they've been very busy. For the last week or so, um, they've been tweeting regularly. Uh, oftentimes, no, actually daily. Um, sometimes twice a day. Uh, the theme of it seems to be just sort of a, a greatest hits kind of thing. They're, they're using video clips. They're using excerpts from testimony to show the work of the committee to try to keep it in the public eye, even though, of course, uh, they're currently in August recess and nothing is going on. Um, no news yet on when the next committee hearing will take place. However, it's my personal belief this will happen sooner rather than later. Precisely because there's so much work that they haven't done. And they haven't shown, for example, the link between the extremists uh, and Donald Trump conclusively. Anyway, They've hinted at it. Uh, you know, they've had Cassidy Hutchinson say things like, well, when Rudy Giuliani was around, there I would hear words like Proud Boys and Earth Keepers. So, what they haven't done is go into the detail of these cases. Now, that's for important legal reasons, right? You can't taint the jury. But these cases are now being brought. So, I think that the B-Squad, once again, uh, you know, part of the reason why we are um, in a new season is because I believe that they've turned a corner. And the, the gloves were off, well, now they're well and truly off. And they're finally going to start bringing these cases against these insiders and these larger groups. And I think that the effort by the committee, uh, or committee staff on Twitter anyway, shows that they, you know, um, they're dedicated to the work. I mean, it could be that this is something that they do when they're not busy. It could be that they put things up on Twitter when there's not a lot else going on. Uh, but I think that it does show that they are dedicated to winning hearts and minds. They're trying to keep this up in the news. Um, it doesn't look like there's any kind of thematic content that suggests that they are in any way, uh, you know, giving us tips as to what's going to happen in the next hearing. But I, I do believe that it'll happen uh, soon after they return. That would be my hope anyway. Now, when this whole process began, you will recall earlier at the very early episodes of the show, before they had actually nailed down the format of the January 6th committee, there were hopes that there would be a, a bipartisan commission. I was against that. Bipartisan commission, Blue Ribbon Council commission, whatever, absolutely toothless. The committee itself has been far more effective. And they're a political organization. It doesn't really matter. You know, they're part of Congress. Of course it's political. And so, you know, there's these charges of politicization. Well, guess what? When your party's leader attacks a branch of government, the co-equal branch of government, the Congress of the United States, it's going to be political. Sorry, it's inherently political. The investigation, of course, is going to be political. And, you know, of course you're going to use it because democracy itself is absolutely on the line. So there's not really, they're not really tipping us off onto what they're going to do in September. But if you would ask me in the beginning uh, whether or not there would be huge congressional hearings in September before the midterms, I would say no. I would say, well, my goodness, that is something I would advise them to do. That's a great idea, but I wouldn't have thought that it would happen because precisely, you know, most of the insider establishment Washington ethos is to be like, no, no, we don't want to be charged with politicization. Well, I think the committee is proceeding in full awareness of the fact that no matter what they do, they will be charged with politicization. They will face charges of politicization by the far right. So if that's going to happen, why not, right? You know, if they're always going to <laughs> convince, uh, accuse you of being a communist, for example, just be a communist. Uh, if you're, you know, again, I, I'm being farcical here. 
Uh, you know, if you look at I mean, the members of the average Democratic member uh, of either the House or the Senate, you know, far far from it. Nonetheless, though, um, we don't have any information, any indication of where they're going. But I think that we will be seeing more action on the committee front when they return in September. So I'm looking forward very anxiously to that. And of course, you know, as soon as we are notified of when the new committee dates uh, are, are scheduled, I will put that up. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, for indulging me in this uh, little side project that I think, you know, hopefully explains some of what happened this summer. Complex cases, VIPs, larger groups, and I think that we're going to be seeing more of these kinds of cases moving forward. That the delays are in, in, uh, explained partly because the cases that they've been working on are complex, but also because they are going to be charging new defendants, possibly unsealing other cases that we don't even know about um, in the weeks and months moving forward as we creep ever closer to actually having consequences for the inner circle. And I think if that's going to happen, it's going to be after the midterms. But I am heartened by the fact that neither the Department of Justice nor the committee has been easing up. They are, you know, yes, August recess is a thing that happens on the schedule, but committee staff have shown that they are still working. And I fully expect that this is something that, you know, is going to be ongoing, even as we head into the midterms. The news cycle for January 6th is not going to slow down just because there's a general election. Okay, thank you so much for your listenership. Please take the time to uh, rate on the podcast of your choice. And until then, thank you.